Welcome to Croptastic, the Interplanet podcast in part two of a special two-episode edition where we're taking a deep dive into the science behind Interplanet with co-founder and chief scientific officer Rod Kumimoto and head of detection technologies Ari Kornfeld. Now, the goal of this special is to provide a technical primer directly from the scientists who are bringing together the well-established sciences in a novel way for Interplanet. Episode one featured Rod talking to us about the plant biology. And for this episode, we'll chat with Ari about the physics and other sciences involved in detecting interplants' optical signals in daylight from as far away as space. Ari, let's go ahead and just uh, kick off with you laying out your uh, background and how you got to uh, interplant. Thank you, Sean. It's, it's really great to be here. So I'm a plant ecophysiologist by training. And just to unpack that a little, it's, uh, I look at how plant metabolism interacts with its environment. But I have pretty unusual path getting here. Uh, and so it's worth just a little background there. Originally, what I really wanted to be was an engineer. And I got as far as getting accepted into engineering school. And then kind of life overtook and I steered into a different direction. But this idea of what I think of as the engineering mindset has really kind of permeated everything I've done since. To me, it's still an important thing. And, and what I mean by engineering mindset is kind of a focus on instrumentation and also on precision of, of measurement and of analysis. So what I actually ended up doing was uh, getting a degree in software design. I got a master's in uh, artificial intelligence knowledge-based systems, uh, got a job working for a bank on Wall Street in their uh, AI department, uh, and then decided that I really wanted to move to California. I, I got a job at SRI International they had a business consulting group where we were taking advanced technology and trying to bring it out to corporate America. Uh, and it's really interesting because I was listening to the, um, your interview with Jakob Solomon. And in the middle of it, he brings up Judea Pearl and belief networks. And that's exactly what I was doing. So there's just cross pollinization. Yeah. Yeah. It's very cool. Very cool to hear that it's still coming <laughs> up you know, these days. So I did that for around a decade, and then one day I was just kind of hiking with some friends and looking around and thinking, you know, I don't really want to spend the rest of my career indoors kind of tied to a computer. What I really want to do is, you know, figure out something outdoorsy, maybe like become a forest stranger, I don't know. And so I actually did quit my job and went to Humboldt State University, which is actually known for its uh, forestry. Uh, and it took me all of a day there to realize, you know, what I really wanted was plant science. Because that's exactly the same idea that's engineering. You're probing the plants, you're tinkering with them, you're trying to figure out how they work and, and how to optimize them. So I guess I transferred into the biology department, ending up getting a degree there and then going on for a PhD at the University of Canterbury, where I got my PhD in plant ecophysiology. And that takes us to around 2012. I was looking for a job and I ended up getting a job Get, um, with, at the Global Ecology Department of Carnegie Institution for Science with a fellow named Joe Barry, who's one of the pioneers in plant ecophysiology. Uh, and he, he's always very interested in this phenomenon called chlorophyll fluorescence, which no doubt we're going to talk a little, a little more about later, and was particularly uh, intrigued in wanting to um, delve further into this, um, we're going to call it new for the moment, field of solar-induced fluorescence. Uh, where people had just realized that we could measure it from space. There were actually satellites that could detect solar, um, the, the fluorescence of chlorophyll. And so I went in there and I developed equipment and algorithms. We actually deployed to several places, including the Amazon rainforest. Um, and the year before, I joined uh, Interplant uh, at, at a soybean farm in Nebraska. So there, there's my agricultural chops. That kind of, yeah, and that kind of takes us to 2019 when Interplant was looking for a way 
to scale their plant sensor technology. And I think Rod kind of gave the POV from the inner plant perspective. Uh, so Nick Koshnick was the science advisor at the time, another person you interviewed, and he had picked up on Solander's fluorescence and realized that Joe Berry was just around the corner from him, so to speak, uh, asked him to you know, advise on whether uh, he thought that this was a feasible technology for an implant. I was the main technologist on the ground in, in, in Joe Berry's lab, so Joe invited me along, very kind of him, uh, and here I am. So that, that's, that's really the, you know, how I got here. That's a great path. I just love the I love the epiphany in the forest. Very interplant, I feel like. So uh-huh. tell me. So we've had conversations about this in the past, and you've laid out the historic path of this technology because you talk about 2010 when you were getting in on the kind of ground floor of this. But this is based on science and technology that was predates that by a fair amount. Can you That's correct. Walk us, through the, walk us through the history a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, so the actual phenomenon we're talking about, the reason that this technology exists is because of chlorophyll fluorescence. You can think of it, maybe it's the, it's the killer app. Right. So this is like the precursor to what we're doing, is this exactly. idea that plants fluoresce and you can detect that from space. Exactly. And, and so, yeah, so we, we kind of known for like two centuries now, the, the, the fundamental physics and biology that, that get tied together. And, and that's essentially the idea of fluorescence, the idea that chlorophyll fluoresces. And the idea that the solar spectrum, we're going to go into this a little more detail maybe later, has a little dark lines in it. It's, it's not completely uniform. But it's really, it's, it's, it's really didn't take off um, until the 70s and then the 90s, two different uh, aspects of it. In, in the 70s, of course, um, satellites came out in, in the late 50s, early 60s, uh, and uh, Landsat uh, came out in the 70s. And kind of in part, and so the importance of this is it really brought the concept of remote sensing to the foreground of uh, people's thinking. You know, it's the idea that we can measure from a great distance, you know, what's going on on the surface of the planet. And in the 70s, the folks at Perkin Elmer developed a tool that they called the Fraunhofer uh, line detectors. Fraunhofer is named the person who, for whom these dark lines in the solar spectrum are named after. Uh, and they developed it for general remote sensing. Uh, they were interested in uh, geological surveys as well as detecting pollution. Apparently, you, you can detect like oil slicks. They, they have their own fluorescence or luminescence that you can detect. And they noted in the paper that, you know, you could also detect chlorophyll using this technique. And they did publish, you know, in, in the 70s, I think they did publish one or two papers where they actually measured it. Uh, but the thing is, I, it didn't really catch on, certainly not with the plant ecophysiology community. And I think it's for two reasons. One reason being that they really did have this geosciences approach, uh, and they published mostly in those type of journals, which may not have been visited too much by the ecophysiologists. And, and that's actually kind of important because that's also our story about what's special about our marriage of plant sensors with remote sensing. It's you know the people who read one set of journals don't necessarily read the other. Bringing people together, that's that's what we're doing. Yeah, exactly. But this, so, but what I'm talking about is all on the detection side, even though it's the same concept. But the other one, which I think is much more important, is it wasn't really until the 1990s that the equipment and the theories were developed to really put a quantitative interpretation on, chlorophyll, on plant chlorophyll fluorescence. And all of a sudden, people realized, wow, you can use this tool to understand what's going on inside the plant metabolically, you know, what, what's happening with photosynthesis without even touching the plant, without certainly without destroying the plant. 
And perhaps even more important, another way it was probably different than the, 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 the Fraunhofer line detector was it was handheld. You could take this out with you into the field. And this is what plant ecophysiologists love. Uh, so it was in the 90s when this took off. You start seeing a little more increase in essentially land-based uh, solar-induced fluorescence measurements. And then, bam, 2010 comes along and people say, we can see it from space. We already have satellites there that can do it. This is amazing. And that's a little interesting story. I, I, um, I don't know that we should spend too much time on it, but basically these satellites were designed to measure atmospheric chemicals, CO2, methane, so greenhouse gases. Uh, and they were noticing there's interference because the um, atmosphere itself is not completely transparent. There's a lot of dirt, dust in it and clouds. And you need a way to measure how much interference you're getting from the clouds as opposed to how much absorption you're getting from what you're interested in. And one of the things they realized is that there's this dark band in the solar spectrum called O2A where it should be really dark. And we should be able to use, you know, just how dark it is to um, kind of estimate, uh, get a better estimate of, of uh, the transparency of the atmosphere and other parts of the atmosphere, uh, of the, excuse me, of the spectrum. And what they realized is that when they're looking at that band, it wasn't as dark as it should have been. And someone had this great aha moment when they realized, oh, this is chlorophyll fluorescence. It's kind of filling in this, this dark band. And they kind of took it from there. They were able to disentangle the two. And it was great for them, uh, but even better for the plant ecophysiology community. Uh, so I started, as I said, 2012, 2013 at, uh, at Carnegie. And really, I could see just in the, the, the conferences how much the interest in it really exploded. We started with this like really small group and every year it would like double in size, you know, the number of people who were interested in this and who were presenting papers or posters. So, so it's really the last 10 years that, that has seen the feasibility of the type of technology we're, we're using today. So it's kind of inflection point. So everyone was aware of the Fraunhofer lines, the gaps in the spectrum. Yeah, yeah. And and those are so. I, and I also want to break down a little bit just fluorescence. Fluorescence is a, is a somewhat um, non-intuitive concept. It, it's so. First of all, it's not like bioluminescence. It's not a firefly, but it's also something that is triggered by light, but is not the light that triggered it. And that's really key to understanding how we're able to detect it at all. One analogy I'm I'm, I'm working on right now is think of it like playing ping pong. So you hit the ping pong ball towards the table. It bounces off the table towards your opponent. That's in optics. That's what we would call a reflection. It's the same ping pong ball that you hit is the one that's going over to the other side of the table and bouncing off of it. Now, imagine that you had this magic ping pong table. It was made of like putty or something. And you, you hit the ping pong table at the table. And instead of bouncing off, it gets sucked into the table. Ping pong ball completely disappears. And then a second later, pop, another little ping pong ball comes, but it's smaller than the first one. And it's going, you know, in any direction. It doesn't really have any, anything related to how you hit it. That's fluorescence. It's a whole new ping pong ball. That, a whole new ping pong ball. <laughs> Except that on shirts. So we've got fluorescence, which is, uh, which is the foundational, like what we're looking at. Yeah. And then we have those two inflection points, the 70s, where kind of remote sensing very first began the 90s where it became more refined and then fast forward to the 2010 2012 time frame and this is when people are getting even more refined and looking at it a lot closer so just to maybe even to continue with uh, the, the the previous train 
you know, as Ross said, we've been detecting fluorescence for, you know, at least half a century, probably, uh, you know, two centuries. And we're not doing it in daylight, but what we're doing is we're taking advantage of the fact that the color of the light shifts, that the actual wavelength of the light changes. Uh, and again, we, we can do, this is more, more of a thought experiment maybe than an analogy. You can go into a dark room and you've got your green laser pointer in your hand and you shine it on some object in that dark room. Now, before you turn on the laser, the room is entirely dark. You don't see anything. And again, this is, this is true for fluorescence too. There's no fluorescence in the dark. Now you turn it on and all you see is green laser because the laser is really bright. But that doesn't help you. But you happen to have a pair of laser safety goggles on you and you put them on. And now you turn on the laser. If what you're shining it on is not fluorescence, you won't see anything because the laser safety goggles are working. They're blocking all of the laser light. But if there's such, what you're shining it on is fluorescence, maybe you're shining it on a leaf, then you'll see the red fluorescence coming out of the leaf because that's a different wavelength. And, and that's essentially how we're able to see fluorescence. Uh, we're blocking the light that's exciting the fluorescence, and we're only allowing through the light, the new light that's being generated. So this, this is the way it's been done. This is exactly the way it's done in a microscope, you know, with, you know, obviously a little bit fancier. This is still a way that we do detection today. You can have a little handheld units where you can block out the light. You can have a little box where you take pictures of, you know, some of which we've, we've published on our, uh, you know, social media sites. Now we go out to sunlight. And if you were just to look in sunlight, the, the, there's too much sunlight. You can't block it. And so it would, again, it would overwhelm the fluorescence signal that you'd, you'd want to see. But if you have really fine spectral resolution, you can look between those slats, so to speak. And those are actually what we could call microspectrally dark rooms. So outdoors, it's actually dark in certain spectral bands. And we're seeing the fluorescence in those bands. Because of the Fraunhofer lines blocking some of the solar light, the solar light's like the fork. It's got a lot of tines on it, right? It goes up and down, up and down. If you, if you look at a, you know, a graph of the intensity of the light uh, over wavelength. The fluorescence, because it's new light, doesn't have that properties. It's nice and smooth. It's like a spoon. If I put a spoon behind a fork, I can see the spoon despite the fact that there's a fork there. And this is essentially mathematically what we're doing. We're looking at the differences in the shape, the spectral shape of the two light sources. And that's, that allows us to disentangle them. So we're looking at a spoon through a fork. What we're not looking at is we're not looking at the same fluorescence as, as chlorophyll. This is, uh, this is fluorescence that Rod has grafted exactly. into the plant. And so the plant is making a separate kind of fluorescence and we're able to look, and that's the spoon behind the fork that we can see. From, yeah. from the optical devices. And, and when we're, and in fact, that's a good point because when we're spectrally resolved enough, as we have to be, the chlorophyll fluorescence is a different part of the spectrum. It doesn't interfere. And that's really a problem. I think Rod kind of mentioned it in the last episode that one of his big concerns was that the, the fluorescence from the natural plant fluorescence was going to overwhelm anything that, that we could put into the plant. Uh, and the reason it doesn't is because they're actually spectrally distinct. And we've talked a little bit with 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 Rod about how both camps, the the plant set, plant biology side and the physics side, we're pretty confident that they could do their stuff, but right. we're, we're kind of suspicious about whether the other side could actually bring it together. What walk me through when uh, the moment where you thought, okay, yeah, this is this is totally doable, or was there was there that watershed moment, or did it just take a, a little bit of time? Or walk me through how that happened. Oh, sure, sure. So it's interesting, you know. I, I think Rod mentioned last week that. Uh, a lot of the, uh, the origins of the fluorescent proteins tend to be from like corals or intertidal species. 
and we, we had a colleague at the Global Ecology Department who was very interested in, um, in stuff going on in the coral reefs. You know, Joe and I had been talking about, well, you know, we could probably use uh, solar-induced fluorescence to measure that. You know, it's green fluorescence, it's not red, but we got the Fraunhofer lines throughout the spectrum, a lot of work. And we did a little experiment and it actually worked. So we knew it would work. There, there was, so I'd have to say that by the time we met Interplant, there wasn't much question that it would work. The, the big question I had was, you know, going back to that little anecdote you mentioned, um, could the biologists make the signal bright enough that uh, we could detect it? Around the time that I started, I got some data on the amount of fluorescence that we had in a plant that was already doing artificial um, red fluorescence, as it turns out. And I was able to run simulations. So I knew from my simulations that it would work. John, uh, <laughs> so maybe I'm overconfident, but yeah, I was uh, very confident that, that, that it would work. And of course, everyone else was very skeptical, you know, rightfully so. So, so my first mission when, when I got hired back in 2019 was really to build the equipment and, and, and demonstrate that it would work. We, we kind of had to really scramble uh, to get the permits necessary to do a, a field trial. Uh, so we ended up, um, and because I was at the time living in Halfland Bay, we ended up getting space at, um, at Sweet Farm, which um, is run by Nate Saltpeter, another uh, guest of the, guest of the show. Alumnus. And uh, he's very interested in, in this idea of ag tech incubating. So, so he was really thrilled to have us. And, and we got it at the very end of the season. I don't know, it was October, November or something. You know, this is not the time to be growing tomatoes outdoors. We still were just, you know, just by the skin of our teeth able to get the tomatoes to grow enough. And I had built equipment during that period. Uh, and we took the equipment out and, and it did work. It, it, it worked on the first try, I'm, I'm happy to say. It worked on the first try. So now help me out with, so this is the detection that you do in the field at this at this stage is, is probably handheld. Um, certainly you could, you could imagine it on maybe a tracker or something. What's it look like when you go from that scale to, to, to remote sensing via satellite? Yeah, yeah. So this was actually um, tower-based, we call it. It's, um, it's a little bit free. It's more like tractor-based, really, than, than handheld that, that, we, that we were doing. Yeah, taking up to satellites, it gets more expensive. <laughs> you, um, it, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you, you, you're going to have to have a bigger footprint. You're not going to be able to measure a single plant from a satellite. The technology is essentially the same, but what we're doing now is what you could call a spot check. We're not really imaging the plant. We're just looking at the average over the entire plant. Uh, and when you go to satellites, what you do is you go to an imaging method uh, where you're actually taking spectra along a whole, like you take a picture with a camera and each pixel is a whole spectrum. So it's, it's a hypercube, they call it. Yeah, so I'm curious because it just, so the, the satellites that exist, these are, these are, the satellites already have the the spectral resolution required to pick this up. So it's not really necessarily anything new about a satellite. They're up there, they're ready. It's just on the signal end for us to get enough plants in the field for that to be visible from space. Yeah, yeah. So the difference between what's up there now uh, and what we need is the, the wavelength that they're looking at. Uh, generally speaking, because we're looking at a very high spectral resolution, you can't look at a very wide range of, uh, of, of, of wavelengths. So it tends to be fairly narrowly focused. Uh, and so for the ones that are doing chlorophyll fluorescence, they're fairly narrowly focused in the, the far red, near, near infrared. And we would want to be in the visible, essentially, you know, green, red, maybe blue, yellow. 
And so what's involved in making that? Because I've seen in the, uh, the, I think some of the pictures that I've seen from the field look like they were taken through a filter. And I think someone showed me a picture of a, of a filter over like an iPhone. So the, yeah, yeah, the yeah, yeah. was able to detect Run that. Devices, yeah. <laughs> so what, so is um, that's for the benefit of the iPhone. Um, but the satellite, they just have to tune it to, to a specific uh, <sighs> wavelength. So this is this is where we get back to the difference between the traditional way to detect fluorescence and the, the SIF way to detect. So what I did with the iPhone was the traditional way. Um, I actually put an optical filter over the flash so that it blocked all of the longer wavelength, all the red wavelengths. And then I put an optical filter over the lens of the iPhone that blocked all of the green wavelengths that I was allowing through from the flash. And I did it in the dark. Um, there, there were two ways I did it. One was with a, a, little, a little chamber that you clamped over the leaf. And the other one is, was uh, I just did it at night. Uh, and in fact, this is, you know, early on, we're expecting we're gonna do some night detections. And Rob kind of mentioned this uh, last time also. If you're at night, there isn't a lot of ambient light so if you use a powerful enough illumination lamp, uh, you, you can take your measurement with a drone or something. You know, with, with a laser, you might be able to do it from an airplane. So I, I asked this question of, of Rod during the, the previous episode, but I, I want to ask this of you because I, I think the answer might be different. As we get this online and as this starts collecting data, what, what component of this excites you? Is there a particular insight you're excited or what are you looking forward to when this gets up and running? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, as an instrument person, you know, to me, it's like, it's the instrument that's the greatest thing in the world. But, but I have to say at the same time, you know, I, I just think that using the plant as a sensor is just such a wonderful, elegant solution to detection. I mean, first of all, it solves your distribution problem. The, the detector just goes out there, or the, the sensor, excuse me, goes out there with, with the plants. But it's also, I mean, what could possibly be better to tell us what's going wrong than the plant itself? That's really excited, um, really exciting to me uh, to, to see us being able to actually deliver this, this kind of specificity. So, and I want to go back to that yeah. moment in the forest where you had your epiphany. Is this a, f- a fulfillment of this epiphany? Did you, did you satisfy that or is there, is there more to do? There's always more to do, but this is certainly private. I mean, part of, a little bit of my joke uh, on that one is, you know, then I ended up just doing a lot of computer work anyway. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you, Ari. Appreciate your time. Rod, appreciate your time as always. And I thank you guys for both breaking down uh, the, the technical components behind the technology that Interplant is putting into the field. Thanks, John. John, it's really a pleasure to be here. That'll wrap up episode two of this special two-episode edition of Croptastic's Deep Dive into the Science Behind Interplant. Thank you again to Chief Scientific Officer Rod Kumimoto and Head of Detection Technologies Ari Kornfeld for joining me today. We hope you found this primer interesting and informative. We'll return to our regular format for our next episode, so please remember to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode, and please share any feedback you have with us via LinkedIn or on our Twitter at inner underscore plant. Thanks for listening.